tell you a story. It's an old story. You've heard it maybe, but it's such a marvelous communication, way to communicate what I want to try to say this morning. Story about a little boy whose father, every night the little boy wanted his dad to tell him the story of the three bears. Father would go in, tell the story. Night after night after night, he wanted to hear the same story. Never wanted to hear another story. So the father would tell him. Father finally decided that that he would uh, tape that story, put it on a tape, put it on a player beside the little boy's bed so that when he got ready to go to bed, he could just punch play and suddenly he would hear his daddy telling him the story of the three bears. Well, after a couple of nights of that, the little boy went to his father and said, Dan, I, I, I don't like that. Well, why don't you like it, son? It's, it's a story you like, and it's my voice. And he said, yeah, but it doesn't put its arms around me. That's what we want, isn't it? Not just the story, but the touch. Jesus is God's way of putting his arms around a frightened world. That incomparable passage of Scripture penned by the inspired Apostle Paul in the second chapter of Philippians. Let this mind be in you, he wrote, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, now that word form is a Greek word morphe, which means essential nature, being in the essential nature of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a slave, a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. In being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things beneath the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an incredible description of the incarnation. Inspired the great English poet John Milton to write these inspiring words. That glorious form, that light insufferable, he laid aside and here with us to be, forsook the courts of everlasting day and chose with us a darksome house of mortal clay. He laid it all aside and chose with us to be as we are, where we are, dwelling in a loathsome house of mortal clay. He became like us. The Bible says, He became sin for us who knew no sin that we 
might be made righteous. We might be made in the righteousness of God. We might be made like him. The indescribable truth of the incarnation. How do we put it into words? Jesus came, became sin for us, and died for man, not at his best, not at his noblest, not at his finest, but man at its worst. It makes no difference how far we may be from God how deep we may be in rebellion against God, how mired we may be in the slough of sin that, that engulfs us when we willingly, intentionally, repeatedly disobey, disobey Him. Nevertheless, the Bible says, God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that He cannot hear. It makes no difference how far away you may feel from God. His great arm of love will reach out to you and draw you to himself. It makes no difference how far away you may be, but that you cry out like a little child. And all of heaven responds to that cry. And he will come to you instantaneously to lift you up and to hold you and envelop you in his loving arms. The incarnation, this renunciation of his divine status, this identification with sinful men, this humiliation to die an excruciating, ignominious death on a Roman gibbet for us is incomprehensible. Now, this revelation of the incarnation of God was sudden, was not sudden. It was, it took some time. It was gradual. It was progressive. It began in the virgin's womb and ended in a borrowed tomb. But in between was 30 years of being like us. A helpless little baby, a toddler around the house in Nazareth, a young man going to school, going to the synagogue, working with his father in the carpenter's shop, like us. And then one day, when he was 30 years of age, He walked down to Judea, good long walk from his home in Nazareth, walked down to Judea where a man by the name of John the Baptist had multitudes of people who were coming to repent, who were coming to say, I'm sorry for what I've done. But that was all that could happen through John the Baptist's preaching was to say, I regret, I regret, I regret. There was no power of renewal. There was nothing 
to help them be something new. Only to look back and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Nothing that can help them say, I'm new, I'm forgiven, I'm saved. I can live victoriously through him. But Jesus went down there and John the Baptist was just baptizing one person right after the other. And Jesus got in line somewhere back at the end of the line, just walked in there and stood in line one right after the other. He became like us having to stand in line. And he got up there to where John the Baptist was baptizing and John looked up and said, no, I'm not going to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to touch your shoes. And Jesus said, let it be. Let it be. For it fulfills all righteousness. All righteousness. Not just negative righteousness that John the Baptist was preaching. Jesus was declaring a whole new definition of righteousness. John the Baptist did not know that at that moment. No one knew that at that moment. But Jesus was declaring here prophetically, I'm going to be revealing a new righteousness. Not this old righteousness that's constantly confessing and confessing and confessing and repenting and repenting and repenting. This old righteousness that's built upon don'ts, upon laws, upon rules, upon exclusion, exclusion, upon judgmentalism, all of that negative stuff. I am going to show you a new righteousness. But he identified himself with sinful men and was baptized as one. In the eyes of everybody there, they looked upon him like a repenting sinner. And he was sin in that he had taken our sin upon him. He never committed a sinful act, but he had the nature that you and I have. He could have sinned. He could have succumbed to the temptations. If he could not have succumbed to them, then they were an act. And God does anything but put on an act. God is not a hypocrite. He's not a play actor, nor is his son. The temptations were as real as the temptations you and I have. And he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. And he could have said yes to them. But because of his faith in God and of his prayer life and his power, he was able to say no. And he says, what I did through faith, I will now give you the strength and the power to do through faith. This, he said, is the new righteousness. Not only saying I am sorry, but saying I accept forgiveness and grace through the message of Jesus Christ who came to say we are not saved by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy his grace he saved us by faith incredible incomprehensible Jesus came to have a personal relationship with us. You know, you and I would never have known what God was like. We would never have known what God was really like if Jesus hadn't come. Look at what the world thought about God before Jesus came. He's distant. He's obscure. He's harsh. 
Look at how people identify God who are not Christians. Altogether different. Diametrically different. Jesus came to put God's arms around us and to show us what God is really like. He's like a father. We preached about that a Sunday or two ago. God is a father. There's a great story in the book of 2 Kings about Elisha. Elisha was the successor uh, to Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet, that defeated the prophets of Baal. And when he was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, he, his mantle fell upon. His successor became a prophet named Elisha. Read about it in 2 Kings, 4th chapter. Read a lot about him there, but this 4th chapter is what I want to concentrate on. He went to the home of a, a, a Shunammite couple, a man and a woman who had no children. And the Shunammite woman said, please, I, I, I want a child. We want a child. And he said, God will give you a child. God will give you a child. Well, Elisha went back to his ministry. The child was born. She had a baby. She had a baby. And happy family. And then one day the little baby got sick. And the little baby died. So the woman said, we need the prophet So she sent one of her servants to find Elisha to tell Elisha that the baby had died. When Elisha received the word, Elisha had his staff, the staff that they carried, not only to help them walk through the rocky countryside, but that staff was a symbol of his prophetic office. And so Elisha gave his staff to his servant and said, take this back to the Shunammite woman and to the dead baby and place this staff upon the baby's face. Which the servant did. Did it again. Nothing happened. Did it again. Nothing happened. And he went back disconsolately to Elisha to say it didn't work. So Elisha came in person. He came in person. Underline that. And he walked into the room where the dead baby was and Elisha stretched his body out upon the body of the little baby. Face to face. The Bible says eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. Interesting, isn't it? That symbol, you see the cross? Here he is reaching down, touching the boy's face, his eyes to his eyes, his mouth on his mouth, his hands on his hands. And the life in Elisha touched the death in the boy and the boy came to life. For thousands of years, We have been laying the staff of education on the face of a dead world. We've been laying the staff of philosophical speculation, of moralistic pronouncements, of religion 
rules, don'ts, still dead. Until he came, Jesus came, and he stretched himself out upon us, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, and he breathed his pneuma, his breath, which is the Greek word for spirit. He breathed his spirit into our dead lungs, and he looked into our minds, and with the pumping of that the, the, the injecting of that air into his lungs, the heart begins to beat and he puts his hands upon his hands. So he has a new heart and he has a new lung, new lungs, and he has hands that can begin to translate that life into ministry for other people. And the world comes alive through Jesus Christ's personal relationship. Jesus Christ, the great physician was the first one to ever practice divine CPR. It's exactly what he was doing. Cardio pulmonary resuscitation. Cardio heart pulmonary lungs resuscitation renewal. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what he'll do in your life and what he'll do in anyone's life. If you will allow him the representative of God in human flesh to come touch you and breathe his breath into you and transform your mind and your heart and look into your mind and let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He will inject his truth, his spirit, his life into us, and we will become living souls. Incredible, incomprehensible what he can do, but he does it. He's done it millions of times. He'll do it today if you've never let him touch you personally with his spirit. Well, after Jesus was resurrected and ascended, was that it? Were we on our own? Did Jesus just come slumming for 33 years? Then he went back to heaven And he got back there and said, wow, I'm glad that's over. Hmm. Boy, there's a lot of pain and suffering and hurt down there. I'm glad to be back up here. Did he leave us on our own? Or is he still with us? The Apostle Paul was standing there one day directing the stoning of Stephen, who was the first man to die for the Christian faith. Paul was standing there supervising the stoning of Stephen. He hated, Paul hated Christians and he wanted to obliterate them all. Right after that, he left and went to Damascus or headed to Damascus where he was going to get other Christians like Stephen and bring them back and subject them to the same torture and death. But on the way to Damascus, a bright light shone from heaven and Paul fell in the dust of the Damascus road and he had a conversation with Jesus. He says, who are you, Lord? And the answer came back. This is profound. Listen, 
The answer came back, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. Listen to what he said. He didn't say, I am Christ in heaven. He didn't use that divine word, Christos. He used that human word, Jesus. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Do you mean to tell me that Jesus was still in Nazareth? Exactly. That's exactly what he's saying to us. He's in Nazareth. He's in San Antonio. He's anywhere and everywhere through his presence, through his spirit. I will never leave you, he said, nor forsake you. You will never be out of my sight, out of my reach, out of my touch. Never be alone. Never. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. And when we cry, he cries. When we hurt, he's hurt. And when we hurt others, we hurt him. When we stone others with words, if not rocks, we hurt him. So you're not persecuting Stephen, you're persecuting me. I'm in each one of you. When you hurt somebody else, you're hurting me. You're hurting me. Christ is imminent in our lives. Transcendent, yes, in an overall overarching sense, but he is imminent through his spirit and present with us in all the exigencies of life, however traumatic and difficult they may be. Does he still show up? Yes. He's shown up in my experience a lot of times. Well, I've never seen him, but I've seen you. So many of you in this room have been God's ambassador to me, God's encourager to me, God's affirmation. You may not have known it. Probably don't. But all of us have had a great host of people who represented him, were his ministers of righteousness, his ambassadors, his representatives, reaching out to help one another. We're all here because somebody has represented Christ to us. We have seen something in their spirit and in their eyes and through their hands. It was different because their eyes and their hearts and their hands had all been touched by that outstretched Jesus in their lives. He may show up in a great variety of ways. We do not limit him to the limitation of our own experiences. So often we feel that if someone doesn't have the same experience we have, 
they, uh, they haven't had an experience, or if they don't have one exactly like ours, theirs is invalid. Listen, the Lord has a lot of different ways of working with people. Have you noticed he never healed any two blind people in exactly the same way? Never. You see, we're not carbon copies of each other. Each one of us is individual, personal, unique in the eyes of God. So God has a multifarious way of communicating himself to us. Our daughter Lisa, uh, for a number of years, worked in a children's home. After graduating from Incarnate Word and working at the downtown youth drop-in center, Lisa was a case manager in charge of, uh, of um, assessment when children were brought in by, by uh, state workers, by social workers. And uh, she would go through the material of uh, getting them in, and then she'd do a lot of, she did counseling with them, did a lot of things, taking them to the hospital, going to court with them at times when they were endeavoring uh, to keep those children from being put back into the homes uh, of abusive parents. And so uh, Lisa had some remarkable experiences working with children. And she shared with us years ago one that we've never shared with you, but I want you to hear it. Uh, It happened a number of years ago, and it was late in the day, uh, getting near time to leave, when the social workers uh, brought in five children, five siblings, brothers and sisters, all in the same family. Five. Ages five to about 15 or 16. And so Lisa went through the paperwork of, of in, sen- in a sense, enrolling them and, and then getting them to house parents and in different facilities. And after she'd gotten through with all of that, she decided to go check on those siblings, those children. Now, these five children had grown up in a home that was where the mother was a heroin addict, the father an alcoholic. The father would repeatedly beat his wife in front of the children and sometimes abuse the children. They would constantly be on the move from city to city, avoiding arrest for one thing, needing drugs for another. These children had never been in school. They had never been in a church in their life. So Lisa went over to see how they were doing. And she went to the room where the little five-year-old girl was. And the little girl was sitting on her bed with her legs crossed. And Lisa came to the door and the little girl's back was to Lisa. So Lisa, she didn't see Lisa when she came. When Lisa walked to the door, she heard the little girl singing. And the little girl was singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. She sang that, five years old. Lisa went over and sat down beside her and said, that's my favorite song too. 
That's a wonderful song. Where did you learn that song? Who taught you that song? And this little five-year-old girl. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you were around a five-year-old, but they'll talk real straight to you. They don't embellish things. They don't try to say things well, that necessarily make you feel good. They don't necessarily want to say things you may want them to say back. They're going to just be straight up with you about it, aren't they? Going to be honest with you about it. I'll never forget when I was trying to sing to, it was either Avery or Julia, uh, and I had them on my lap, and I was singing what I sang, have sung to them ever since they were infants. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. I wanted them to hear great music early in their life. And... <laughs> fall in love with music, but um, <laughs> I'll never forget was, uh, Avery or Ju Yuan was sitting there and they, he, she took my face in her hands like this and said, Bo, which has uh, been renamed by Avery, Bo, don't sing, talk. <laughs> I kept on singing. I still don't They'll try it. Um, so a five-year-old will shoot straight with you. So when Lisa said to that little five-year-old girl, who taught you that song? Just as straight, she said, when my father would begin beating my mother and sometimes my brothers and sisters and everybody would be crying and hurting. And she said, I'd run into my room and I'd get into bed. And she said, Jesus would come into my bedroom and sit on my bed, and he taught me that song. Lisa said she felt chills run up and down her spine. And she said, I believe her. And I believe her too. I believe Jesus shows up in person when most needed. It's, it's never been my experience. But it has been the experience of a few very mature, intelligent, sane, sensible Christians I know. I don't doubt them at all. I don't doubt that God can do anything he wants to do or needs to do to help some hurting little one. And we're all little ones in his sight. Let me tell you, he'll show up. When your eyes are filled with tears and your heart is broken, when you're lonely or feel afraid, he's there. He's there. How do I know it? Because Jesus loves me. I want us to sing it. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus 
loves you. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And God told us so when he sent Jesus. And he is here. And if you've never trusted him, let me urge you to trust him. If you've not done what he wants you to do about being a part of his family, his church family, come join the church this morning. Whatever it is God's Spirit is impressing you to do, maybe to come and kneel and pray alone, return to your seat. You don't have to say a word to me, but I'll be here to greet you and welcome you. Whatever his Spirit is impressing you to do, I urge you to do it. For his sake, right. But also, for your sake. You breathe life into you. Accept him today. Let's stand and sing.